Hi and welcome to the Sonji Land Show where everybody's upside down. And today, finally, I get to talk to the Splits Wizard, aka Emmett Lewis, or the other way around. Splits Hobo, <laughs> some people have been calling me, but you know. What Splits Hobo? <laughs> I'll take anyway. both. Every day is upside down in Sonji Land. I had to narrow down the questions I want to ask you because there's just so much wisdom in you. So I think we'll just start with how did you become such a well-known teacher? Can you tell us a bit about your story? Hmm, so the teaching side, so I've explained a lot of stuff online, so I skipped to the teaching for a bit, but it's, it's one of those things where it's like I kind of fell into it a lot of the time because there was, I was working as a personal trainer in London who also, because of my background in acrobatics, I noticed more and more people were seeking me out for movement sort of stuff, which generally translated to handstand, tumbling, flexibility. Uh. And then I started just answering more questions on Reddit, bodyweight fitness and places like that. And then people were more interested in how do adults get flexible because we don't really, it's not general knowledge. It's kind of, it's a different process to what people are told. So that became more and more popular. So then I've, for some reason I teach other things, but then I've known most for the flexibility stuff because it's kind of like, mm -hmm. it's the easiest thing to demystify. So Is it? Yes. Huh. So how do you make people so flexible? Uh, hmm. It's generally to do with treating everyone as an individual. If you look at most stereotypical stretching plans, they are the exact same plan given to everyone saying, you must do this, this, yeah. this, and this. And you must do these five stretches for your quads and these five stretches for your hamstring and these two for your calves and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But when you're working with a person, you must treat them as an individual. You must look at, you know, are they stronger? Are they hypermobile? Are they low exposure? Do they do a lot of resistance training? Do they do no resistance training? Have they... Do they familiar with the exercises? Do they know how to effectively just do the exercise? This is one that catches people out a lot. Because it's kind of like people go, oh, I'll do a split. How do you do it? I'll just move my legs apart. It's basically the same thing of going like, how do I snatch a barbell? Well, I'll just grab it and throw it over my head. They're very complicated movements in and of themselves. And if you don't understand what's going on and then how to adjust the alignment for yourself, mm -hmm. then it just doesn't work or it doesn't work as effectively as it could. So then you start thinking I'm tight or thing. Then it's also part of like we have to have realistic time frames that like it takes it takes eighteen months really to seriously level up your flexibility. So hmm. if you start thinking like, oh I'm gonna do thirty day split and together or twenty day split or a hundred day split, you're gonna probably be disappointed for most of the population. Well, if you think eighteen months, you're not gonna be disappointed with your progress over that time if you have a like an okay plan and are consistent. That kind of thing is like teaching people this is how things go it's kind of like you know I've coached like kids circus and sports acro and stuff like this it's even children like all you have to do is just go on YouTube and look up like gymnast split tutorial and look up all the girls who are making tutorials on how to get your splits for gymnastics who've already been in super gymnastics for I don't know since they were four hmm. they're like they 12 15 right 16 it. and they still yeah. they might not have their split or they're making it for loads of girls that still have these problems uh -huh. So even they don't get flexible, like we have this illusion that they're instantly flexible, instantly mobile, but there's still a process that would bring them through. So people need to understand that. Okay, so I'm really interested now because I uh, talked to the Lee brothers yeah. on previous interviews and it seems like they gained a lot of flexibility, but it's, it also seems like they had an easy time doing it. Maybe you can give us a perspective mm. as their coach. They... Just, um, just speaking about them in general, they had an easy time in training in general because they had a very good lifestyle that was conducive to it. 
one, the two brothers, the three of them who are involved, you don't see the third one that much. Yeah. But the two brothers, they are immensely supportive of themselves. They have a bit of brotherly fighting, what helps with these things, but you know, they really back each other up. It's also their consistency is through the roof. Like as a coach, they're your literal ideal clients. If I told them you will count out 15 grains of rice and that's all you're going to eat for a day, they would actually follow that advice. They just have implicit trust. They go. Yeah, it seems like so, you have their life in your hands. <laughs> I know. It's as you think, what can I do with it? But you know, I I appreciate their trust and I really do. You know, have a lot of gratitude for them that they you know trust me so much mm -hmm. and they follow what I say. But it's this kind of thing is that they they're consistent. They basically got flexible. And it looks like it got fast and the progress has been incredibly fast through everything. But it still took them two years. Yeah. Like it still took them two years of training with consistency that most. I think they probably missed five workouts in two years hmm. or five training sessions. So from your perspective as a coach, having, uh, having worked with a bunch of other clients, um, do you think other people would have had the same progress if they would have done it the way they did? It, you know, I've seen people have similar like progress in circus school and like in various circus schools would have the kind of same progression curve. I think it's possible but it's also there's a lot of like outside of training factors that go into these things so like you know what? when okay this is an example so when they decided okay we really want to push it make it a circus artist they're able to move back home to their parents house their parents are very supportive so they work with the family business part-time mm -hmm. and then they have time to do training yeah so you know and that thing like their mother who better soon yeah. you know, she's really supportive like really wants them to very, go for it yeah and like you know this these kind of things that we don't think about so much, whereas if they were kind of like, okay, I'm 26 and I have to work in a coffee shop and a bar and I don't really have my bills paid on time, so I have this kind of stress and yeah. you know, I have to work late every night. You know, These kind of things will detract from progress, but if you have this kind of environment that is very conducive to low stress, you know, foods on the table, you can progress you can just be left to do your thing yeah. then you can progress at this rate if you live in the real world then we have to be slightly longer or slightly slower in our expectations but yeah josh talked a lot about personality yeah. and he mentioned that um you had a way of seeing them as basically a new person every day do you yeah. do that consciously uh yes I, well it's one of those things i always just want to see what's straight in front of me at the time mm -hmm. so like if someone comes in like previously it's this kind of thing with the classic thing with workouts like mm -hmm. someday everything you seem is fine you you're like i should be able to nail this skill someday it's just not going to work now if you were to go in and go oh my handstand is just not working today but it could like yesterday i could do two minutes on one arm and there was no problem mm -hmm. and today it's just not working and then if you if you expect to be the same every single day you won't it's always going to be changing there'll always be something different mm -hmm. There will be kind of a consistent range you will operate in, but you know, some days will be amazing, other days will be trash. But if you don't have an expectation of just like, let's see what today is, or if you go in and go, I'm going to go in and I'm going to deadlift 205 kilos mm. for 16 reps, and then maybe you'll lift 14 reps, which is pretty fucking good, mm -hmm. but you're going to, oh no, I, 16 was my number, and mm. I didn't make it. Then it's just like you're setting your expectations before you've done the thing. Mm -hmm. As this kind of mental projection we want to avoid. We just want to always treat, particularly in training sessions, as like, what can we do on the day? Can we, is our plan able to accommodate these changes, these fluctuations? Just, you come in, some days you're smashed. 
So if we have a range we can operate in rather than a set, like it must be 15 yeah. seconds of this, then it gives us leeway to go like, okay, I'm a bit tired or okay, today I'm on fire. I'm going to push the limit. So is that how you program your that'll be clients? Yeah, that'll be most of the way clients have a range of things to operate in, mm. either sets, reps, duration, rest periods, okay. anything is anything is negotiable within sort of certain bounds. I think that's a better way to program rather than you must rest 30 seconds, do four sets, yeah. and each rep must be, or each set must be five reps. How do you program your clients' programs? Uh, once again, this is the, the individualization of training where you have to look at one at the most basic level, who am I speaking to? It's, it's what I call the three W's. Mm -hmm. So who am I speaking to? What do they want to do? And where are they in relation to this goal? Mm -hmm. So then it's like, the classic example, we have a 6 day Morgan, a 16-year-old who wanted to go to circus school and become a circus artist all the time in the world. Oh, so he said that from day one? No, not from day one. From day one, they wanted to do calisthenics, actually. They wanted, like, handstand push-ups, one-arm chin-ups and shit. They didn't get into handstand until about six months of training. Yeah. But, uh, well, you know, they say that person versus 52-year-old yeah. woman who has three days a week that she can train. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at like, okay, what is, who is this person? What can they do? And then they go, well, what do you want to do? And they go, okay, I want to do one-arm handstand. And you go, well, you want to do one-arm handstand? Well, what can you do that's kind of close to this? So we always try to find the closest iteration of skill that we can train. Mm -hmm. But then it's also like, how much time can they dedicate to training a week? Is it realistic to the skill? If they can, then we have to find like, for someone like, say, Josh and Morgan who train, they might have eight to ten sessions a week. That's mm -hmm. easy because you just, you can just put everything in there yeah. and there's there's time and a slot it can go in. Whereas for someone who can only train three times a week, that's when you have to like start really thinking like which exercise does this person need and which one will bring them to their goal rather than going like, mm -hmm. here's three exercises. One of them might be the best one and the other ones might be 50%. So you just have to prioritize yeah. uh, what's the most important at the moment. Yeah, so that's when you come to conduct the thing called a needs analysis. And you're like, okay, what is this person lacking the most? Yeah. Will it cross over into the other things they want to bring up? And can we try raise everything uh -huh. at a certain rate? And then we'll have key indicator exercises or performance things that we're looking to bring up. Mm -hmm. Then if that's improved, then we know we've done it right. If it hasn't improved, then we know we need to adjust something. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you have this case like uh, Josh and Morgan that they have all day how do you build up that capacity because not everybody has that capacity to train for several hours yeah it's that was built up slowly despite what the boys think it was kind of their volume was slowly titrated up in terms of either increasing leverages okay. intensity amount of work per unit session and then as they got more capacity I was able to give them slightly more work Okay, so you did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course you did. <laughs> but it's just like, you, it's kind of like a lot of, I'd say 90% of what I'd done with the boys was telling them not to train. Really? Was telling them like, <laughs> no, you don't stretch every single day. You can rest. You don't need to train this every single day. Hold yourself back. I remember there was a good six months where they'd, they'd had a massive increase in their passive flexibility uh -huh. and their active flexibility and control hadn't caught up as much as I would want. Uh -huh. So I banned them from stretching for about four months. They were not allowed to gain or increase their stretches on anything until uh -huh. their control had kept up. So that was very simple. Then it's like, okay, we've knocked 40 minutes or say two hours out of their training week on stretching. They just do activation and control. 
Huh. It seems like Morgan doesn't really remember that because you know he wrote me this yeah. insane program. Um, and you told me to not do it four or five times a week, but yeah. just one or twice a week. It's kind of, yeah, that's the thing is a lot of this happens with, you know, most people are kind of very good at a field is they kind of forget a lot of the the preparation phases or don't understand the reasoning behind something and mm -hmm. why it was done in the training. You see this in every single sport, like everything from soccer, boxing or anything. You'll have someone who's very good, but then they had a coach who was kind of guiding the process and had a kind of like a pedagogy to it that they were bringing them through. Yeah. But then they just seen the end result where like Morgan could survive that stretching program, but you couldn't. Yeah, obviously. But, <laughs> but that's fine because he just goes, okay, this is what I can do now. He's in that, but doesn't think, mm -hmm. ah, rather than going like, ah, oh, this is the stretching program I'd like her to be able to do. How do we get her to it? Mm -hmm. What do you think determines a good coach? And how do you become a good coach? I think what determines a good coach is one, someone who has, it's a hard one, there's a lot of things here. I think in someone is like someone who can understand the science, like the proper science of training and understand where it applies, but also understand that it's not exact and that we have to, we don't want to extrapolate group tendencies to the individual. We need to look at where the group tendencies guide our decisions mm -hmm. for this individual. Mm -hmm. So a classic example is I remember reading a paper on squatting training recently and it was, I forget exactly what it was, maybe it was cluster training, maybe it was dynamic effort or something anyway. But they were comparing results and the conclusion of the paper was that this type of training was very good for individuals in this age group who had two years of training and were 18 to 32. Mm -hmm. But if I, when I was looking at the data set, there was, they tested like the max weight these people could lift, done the program for eight weeks, and then retested it. And mm -hmm. uh, there was two people in the group. One of them lost twenty kilos off their max squat, and the other one lost ten kilos. Mm. And so, but rest of everyone else had pretty good results, five to ten kilo gain. So then it's like, okay, so these two people lost weight. So if I said this type of training is good for everyone, and then gave it to them, and they lost strength then as a strength coach, you'd be kind of sacked. But yeah. Other than that, or then, you know, who knows if the testing conditions were the same. Maybe mm -hmm. if they tested, say they tested on Monday, maybe they tested on Wednesday, they would have had a better increase. So mm -hmm. it's kind of, you have to be wary of that. And there's a lot of that in the training thing. Mm -hmm. Then it's also just being able to assess and understand people. It's like we have an ideal thing that we would like them to do. Or we'd like to, you know, go, oh, I'd really like you to train hands on three hours a day. and all this but then slowly fatigue would mount you'd survive it for one week two three four five six then your joints and everything starts aching and then you've like gone beyond your capacity to recover mm -hmm. so understanding fatigue is cumulative the other thing is just keeping people motivated it can be quite everyone has a different motivation style mm -hmm. you know some people are like they're perfectly fine with the grind they just they go in, punch the clock, do the workouts. Other people kind of need like a little success every bit along the way. So some people, I have clients like that who I'll put in movements that aren't too difficult for them mm -hmm. just to get like, you know, very simple say, the classic ones like people are learning a handstand. They'll get like, you know, arm balances, like the classic thing you see from yoga, arm balances, headstands, just things that I know they'll be able to do. So they'll go, okay, I want you to get this. And then maybe three weeks time they'll have it. So they go, ah, success, ah, okay. success. But then the meat and potatoes of the, the workout is still 
the grind and the conditioning. But if they didn't have the little successes along the way, yeah. they get very demotivated about the programming because let's face it, handstands take a long time. Yeah. Acrobatics take a long time. And a lot of the skills we do, particularly in tumbling and other kind of circusy things, they're very binary from the perspective of the person doing it. It's like I can either do a back tuck mm -hmm. or I fall on my face. Yeah. But for me as a coach, it's like, from day one of this person doing a back tuck, there's like, it's, you know, going from white to black by passing through every shade of gray. It's like doing that. And I, I'll see the improvements because I understand what I'm looking for. And like the person's mm -hmm. jump is better, they take off, they get faster, they jump higher, they swing their arms better, all these things go in. But for this person, it's just like, I jumped, I threw my arms and kicked my legs and either I land on my feet or I don't. Yeah. So understanding this kind of process and also educating people, particularly adults about that is going like, Oh, here's here's the skill you were trying. Oh, here it is last week. Let's look at the video or thing, and we'll sit down, watch the video, and go. Oh, look, see your legs are straighter now. Oh, your arms are better. Mm -hmm. You're still not doing the skill, but all the little components of the skill are getting better. Yeah. So understanding, you know, some people need that. Other people are just like they're fine. They'll just keep doing it till they can do it. Yeah. There's ranges in there. Interesting. Um. I have one last question. I'm I'm trying to process everything you're saying. It's really interesting, but yeah, let's just move ahead. <laughs> um, do you have a physical practice for yourself? Yeah, right now it's kind of for myself. I was like working as a performer for quite some time, and the physical practice was geared towards that. I've stopped performing now, so then I treat myself more as a science experiment, trying stuff out. But at the moment, I've been doing. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. A lot of stuff uh, from Chinese traditional martial arts mm -hmm. with under the guidance of a guy called Serge Augier, who is the master of a Taoist lineage. And that was meant to be a one-year research project to try the stuff out. So it's interesting. I've been doing it for four years now. I'm just It's very interesting. And very how does that look? Or what exactly do you do? A lot of like very... It's very interesting because our school is very old and... It's kind of like we have this concept of martial arts and it's all like uh, forms and kata or these kind of things, mm -hmm. but we do very little of it. It's more, we have a certain physical quality we're trying to learn or embody. Mm -hmm. And then we have very simple combinations of drills, which would be, I suppose the equivalent of Western boxing would be like your normal bag work of like, you know, jab, jab, hook, jab, cross, hook. Like most of the things we do would probably be about three or four movements long, but it's still Tai Chi. It's like how Tai Chi would have been back in the day or Baogu or these kind of things. We have the forms in the school, but from Serge's point of view and his teacher's point of view, they're useless for actually teaching you the fight. So it's very interesting, particularly if you look at the history of it. It's uh, the forms and all these long things that look very nice and pretty. They were kind of how people would advertise their art in the village square. Like, and that only started for about 150 years ago. Mm -hmm up until before that, no one really done the forms. It was just like, how do we fight and defend myself effectively? So that's all quite interesting. Then the way they treat the body is quite interesting as you had a bit of go. Yeah, it was really interesting. We did um, some sessions the last three days and it was actually pretty challenging because you feel like you are not doing anything. I'm but not really doing anything, but suddenly I, wrecked inside and exactly <laughs> um it's also the getting over the boredom yeah. because you're just constantly like doing the same thing over and over again for five minutes yeah and then your delts start to cramp up 
they'll start to cramp up, boredom kicks in. Then you'll so, have where does that practice lead you? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I'll tell you in four or five years. <laughs> I have to find out for myself. Yeah, it's kind of, that's the kind of thing. It's what you get out of the practice is what you get out of it. There's no set thing. Like, there's part of it is just being able to defend yourself. So one of the concepts that we have in the school is that if you are scared of a physical confrontation, you can't interact with people because there's always going to be a subtle undertone of that there could be a potential physical yeah. confrontation. And this mm -hmm. fear, for a lot of people, holds them back from really expressing themselves in the world because they think it can be at a very subconscious level, but it's just like, you know, oh, fuck that guy, you know, I want to have a bit of a shout at him or whatever, but then, you know, mm -hmm. it can escalate. And mm -hmm. if we're scared of that escalation or don't think we can defend ourselves effectively or smash someone, then we can hold ourselves back. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the ideas, like, because let's face it, we don't live in a violent society too much, uh, some parts of the world, but for the most part, people animals. don't. We're still animals, and, yeah. but we still have this at an innate level. So a lot of people that have met in school have been in there longer. They they had this, and they've learned to fight properly. And then they, we do sparring, like no gloves, no nothing. Mm -hmm. And you know, you get into these, and then you're like, actually, hold on, I'm I'm not made of glass. You know, I can deal with this. Mm -hmm. That kind of helps them a lot probably gives you a lot of uh, another level of self-esteem or yeah no, no, I wouldn't call it self-esteem but just like you understand like okay I can express myself and if things do kick off and this person even if they kick me around a bit mm. you know yeah it'll hurt but you know I'll be okay cool yeah it's definitely interesting and let's see what happens in the next four or five years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll let you know. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. Uh, no problem. And for all of you, um, if you ever get the chance to work with Emmett in a workshop or if you want to get on his one-year-long waiting list for online coaching, go ahead. Um, yeah, it's been really interesting and insightful. So, do you have a website? Uh a few of them so my main know. website is emmettlewis.com okay. that's my main thing but then you find me on the social media then just because we're here I want to plug my program myself and Mikael Christiansen have made an online course that we call Handstand Factory that is teaching all the specific components you need to take a two-arm handstand to a one-arm handstand in quite a detailed manner there's a lot of video manual everything and I think it's pretty good we will do actually a, a separate episode on that one as well. <laughs> yeah, because we're at the retreat right now, the launch retreat. And yeah. yeah, there's a lot of material here. So thank you so much for watching. I'll put any relevant links below and I'll see you next Monday on the Sonji Land Show.